honor the sacrifice and the memory of those who have passed beyond the river. From the battlefields of France and Flanders, made for our dominion a place amongst the nations of the world. In the war, we must keep the vision of a better future. In the victory over those who seek world domination and human enslavement. We, the people of Canada, look forward to the last step in Confederation. If you have nothing to hide, why hide it? And I think, in general, that represents the thinking of free men everywhere. In World War I, the flag that flew for Canadian soldiers overseas was the Union Jack. This just means telling Quebecers that they can speak in French to their government. You had an option, sir, to say no, and you chose to say yes I... to the old attitudes and the old stories of the Liberal Party. That... That the notion of separate but equal has no place in Canada. Sure that same-sex benefits pass. I stand before you today to offer an apology to former students of Indian residential schools. As much as possible, stay home. Hello and welcome back to Prime Ministers of Canada. I'm your host, Quinn Porter, and today I will be joined by historian Stephen Atzi to examine the life and premiership of Lester B. Pearson, who was Prime Minister from 1963 to 68. So Stephen, what can you tell us about Pearson's early life and education? Well, I think they were crucial. Uh, I think everybody's life is a product of, of their early environment and experience. Uh, it mattered that Pearson's father was a Methodist minister. It shaped his view of the world. It shaped his social conscience. It was crucially important uh, that he fought in the First World War. Uh, he reacted with horror to what he saw on the battlefields of Europe. Uh, and it was important, too, that he was educated as a historian and that he had a chance to attend Oxford University. Uh, which helped him develop a very strong sense of his own Canadianness. And so was it from his education that he first wanted to go into foreign affairs? It's always hard to know with Lester Pearson. Uh, he was a very private man. He kept his own counsel. Uh, he always denied having ambition, but we know that that's not true. We know that he was very ambitious from, from reading his correspondence. My guess is that the desire to go into foreign affairs was there from a fairly early age. I don't know exactly. It's hard to know exactly uh, where it began, uh, but perhaps when he was overseas with, with the Royal Air Force, uh, perhaps when he was at Oxford, he develops this interest in international relations. And so Pearson's wife, Marion, was a great supporter of his. How important was she to his uh, success? There's no doubt that Marion was crucial. Um, again, she was, he was a private person. So was she. Uh, it's hard enough to know what's happening in somebody else's marriage. Um, but it's particularly difficult when the two are very private people. Uh, she certainly thought the world of him. Uh, she was a highly intelligent woman who really wasn't cut out for the role that women, uh, middle-class women were expected to play in the early 20th century, um, where you were expected to be at home to take care of children and to take care of the home. Um, she was bored with that. And so what she sought out from, from people was uh, individuals of intelligence who could amuse her. Uh, and after her husband passed away, she was quoted as saying that he was the most, one of the most amusing men she had ever met. Um, 
what he got from her, I think, was a, uh, he, he liked intelligent women. Um, he got from her an intelligent companion. She was ambitious, as was he, uh, and supportive of him along the way. But an important part here, too, is that Marion Pearson could be a very, very critical individual. Uh, she could be difficult to live with. And there are little hints of this along the way that sometimes he found her exasperating. Uh, she would say something inappropriate in front of a large group, and he would say, oh, Marion. Um, but in the end, I think, I think it's fair to say um, he was much better off with her than without her. And so if you had to pinpoint one reason why he went into foreign affairs, what would it be? Hard question, I know. I don't know that we can narrow it down to one thing, but if you forced me to, I would say it would be the First World War. Seeing how the failure of the international system uh, led to the deaths of mil literally millions of people, uh, I think led him to make a commitment uh, to make the world a better place. And in his case, he could do that through international affairs. He went into international relations relatively shortly after the war. Uh, what did his early years in foreign affairs entail? So originally he worked in Ottawa uh, in the East Block of the Parliament buildings on, on the third floor, uh, essentially preparing memos, policy memos on what was going on around the world, what Canada's position should be. Eventually he was posted abroad. He spent, uh, he spent the Second World War posted in England. Uh, and so the early years were less about dealing with diplomats from other countries than about um, writing, reading, learning about the world. So he rose up through the ranks and eventually got an offer to join King's government, which he actually declined. Why was this offered and why declined? Well, there's two. That's, that's an interesting question. There are two parts to this. The first is that Mackenzie King, uh, the prime minister, had an enormously sharp eye for talent. He recognized talent and he recruited talent. Not all our prime ministers have done that. I would venture to say that nobody was a better recruiter the Mackenzie King, with the possible exception of Lester Pearson himself. But King recognized in Pearson um, a future prime minister. And he actually says this in his diary at one point, this man might be prime minister one day. So King was always pulling people into his cabinet who fit that description. Um, Pearson didn't like the way King ran, ran foreign affairs. Uh, King's, King was highly defensive always worried about making a mistake, unwilling to have Canada commit to anything, uh, where Pearson was much more, had a much more ambitious foreign policy. He wanted Canada to be more active in the world, and he couldn't imagine serving in, in the cabinet of somebody who didn't agree with him on that. So he actually does join King's cabinet, but only after King announces that he's retiring. So only, he only serves about a month in King's cabinet, and then uh, he, he transitions into the cabinet of Louis Saint Laurent. So Pearson's known for foreign affairs. What makes him such a good foreign secretary under King and later under Saint Laurent? He had, he had all the talents of the diplomat. Uh, the diplomat gets along with everybody. The diplomat's uh, smooth, down to earth, um, repeats to people what they want to hear, keeps all his options open, uh, moves back and forth between people of, of conflicting views easily. Um, Pearson, Pearson was just very, a very smooth man. Could it be said that he was a better foreign secretary than prime minister? I wouldn't say that. I think, I think he excelled in both jobs. Um, 
the, the job of prime minister is a lot more challenging than the job of, of foreign secretary. And he, he ran into problems as prime minister, but I still think he was an outstanding prime minister. And so he played a relatively prominent role in the UN. He was tipped to become the secretary general at one point. And why did he miss out on the job? He, he had the misfortune of being Canadian. <laughs> in this case, uh, Canada was perceived uh, as being too close to the United States. Uh, this was a period when the world was divided into two rival power blocks. Uh, and the Soviets had a veto over the choice of secretary general and wouldn't, wouldn't allow anybody from a country that was perceived as, as being too close to the United States. So eventually they end up with Dag Hammarskjöld from, from Sweden, who was perceived as having an appropriate distance from Washington. And so after his work in the United Nations, he eventually took over as leader of the Liberal Party from Saint Laurent. Was it always obvious that he'd get that job? I would say at first, uh, before Saint Laurent steps down in the dying days of Saint Laurent's government, you wouldn't have thought that Lester Pearson would be the natural leader of the party. Uh, his whole experience was in foreign affairs. And frankly, being party leader and prime minister is largely about domestic affairs. And Pearson just didn't have the experience in that field. He knew nothing about economics um, and he hadn't played much of a role in social policy. Uh, two things happened. Uh, one is uh, the Liberals lose the election of 57, and one of the front runners for the job of leader, a fellow named Walter Harris, was defeated in that election. So Harris was out. So now it came down to Paul Martin. This is the father of, of the Paul Martin, who later became prime minister, Paul Martin Sr., and Lester Pearson. And as the leadership convention was approaching, Lester Pearson happened to win the Nobel Prize for solving the Suez crisis. So immediately Pearson vaulted to the head of the pack. So at that moment, I would say at the moment that he wins the Nobel Prize, he becomes the obvious, the obvious candidate. And so how did Pearson win the Nobel? So yes, the, the, there was a crisis in the Middle East over the Suez Canal. Uh, there had been a war that had broken out between Egypt on one side, France, Israel, and Britain on the other. Uh, and it was Pearson at the UN who came up with the special political algebra that solved the crisis. Uh, the warring parties pulled back, a large peacekeeping force intervened between them, um, the first large peacekeeping force in, in the world's world history. Uh, and for that, for essentially inventing the concept of peacekeeping and for solving the Suez crisis, Pearson wins the Nobel Prize. And so he eventually did go on to become prime minister, defeating Diefenbaker's minority. How did he do this after his predecessors had failed? That's a good question. And this is something I think Pearson doesn't get enough credit for. Uh, we forget that he was an opposition leader uh, and he was a highly, highly successful opposition leader. First of all, he was a very good recruiter. So he inherited a liberal party that was tired and old and he went out and he recruited people. Um, he reinvigorated the party, particularly in Ontario. Up until this point, the party had been nowhere in, in Toronto and the area around Toronto. Uh, because of the recruitment that Pearson does, suddenly the party becomes the major force in Toronto, just to give one example. So there's the recruitment of, of people. There's policy development. He brings in a fellow named Tom Kent, who had been a newspaper editor. Uh, and they begin coming up with ideas, uh, Medicare, a flag, um, 
uh, contributory pension plan, uh, a national student loans program, and they're constantly generating ideas. And the third element, I would say, is what they're doing in the House of Commons. Uh, there were a few old liberals left over from the Pearson year, from the Saint Laurent years, thinking of people like Jack Pickersgill, Pearson himself, uh, Lionel Chevrier, Paul Martin, uh, and they began criticizing um, very effectively the Diefenbaker government. And so every day there's a battle in the House of Commons, and the Liberals are highly effective in, in showing that Diefenbaker is not, a, is not a good Prime Minister, that Diefenbaker is running, is having trouble making decisions, and he's running a, a haphazard government. And so how important was the NDP to use its current name in taking down Diefenbaker? Not particularly important. Um, the the NDP was in crisis. Uh, it was actually the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, until uh, the early '60s, and the party had uh, was was slowly losing support. It was having a crisis of leadership. They decided to create a new party um, to morph the CCF into the NDP, uh, but they still they they're struggling out throughout most of this period. Now the Liberals are conscious that the C that maybe. Uh, a new party on the left, the NDP, may be led by a more effective leader, which eventually becomes Tommy Douglas. Maybe that will be a threat to the Liberals on the left. Um, but, you know, this period, the early period when Pearson's leader, the, the CCF is not a factor at all in, in, in bringing down the Diefenbaker government. And so you'd say it's primarily Pearson's leadership that brought down the government? I would say that. Absolutely. I mean, the, the NDP does play a role when there's the vote of confidence in, in 1963 in the Diefenbaker government, the NDP votes against the Diefenbaker government. But as far as turning public opinion against the Diefenbaker government, that's mainly the work of the Liberals in this era. And what role did Pearson play in the Cold War once becoming PM? We, we tend to remember Pearson as being the peacekeeper. Uh, we forget that he was a Cold Warrior as well. Um, he was worried about the Soviet, Un Soviet Union. He was worried about their exp the Soviet expansion into Europe. Uh, he was worried about communism spreading through the developing world. Uh, and he was, he was very much on the side of the United States over the issue of, of the Cold War. That said, he also had some very serious concerns about the substance of American leadership in the world. Uh, he was very troubled by the war in Vietnam, so he wasn't uh, a puppet of the Americans, uh, but he did believe that Canada should be on the American side uh, and that any disagreements that Canada had with the United States should be expressed in private behind closed doors. He wasn't going to publicly attack the Americans. And so how well did Pearson embrace the domestic part of the job of Prime Minister? Remarkably well. He, uh, as I mentioned before, he didn't have any background in domestic politics, but the main accomplishments of his government are on the domestic side. So it's his government that brings in the national Medicare plan. It's his government that brings in the Canadian flag and creates the Canada pension plan and creates the Canada student loans program that funds all the provincial student loans programs. Um, a remarkable set of accomplishments for a five-year period. I've given you four or five examples. There are probably about 20 or 30 domestic initiatives that are brought about during the Pearson years. To pick on one of them, what led to Pearson introducing a points-based immigration system for Canada? Uh, that's a good question. Um, he very much um, respected the rights of individuals. 
Um, he respected the dignity of, the, of individuals. Uh, he was open to people, and I think this comes from, from working at the UN for so long. He was open to people of different races and religions and, and, uh, and political beliefs. Um, to be fair, it was the Diefenbaker government who did most of the work of creating a color-free immigration system, but Pearson took the final steps that, that finished that off. Uh, and the final step was was introducing the points-based immigration system. But I think it very much goes back to his, his concept of human rights. And so what impacts did Pearson's premiership have on the indigenous communities of Canada? This is, this is one of his weaknesses, I would say. Um, and when we look back now with the values of 2021, we see, we see Pearson differently because of this. Um, this was not a priority for his government. Uh, it wasn't a major issue at the time. Uh, there wasn't a lot that was done on, on this front, frankly. There was some, some work in the north um, dealing with Inuit communities. Uh, but for the most part, I would think that you could characterize the Pearson era as one of status quo for the indig indigenous peoples. It didn't get worse, but there were, Pearson never seized opportunities to make things better for indigenous peoples. And so, Stephen, is it true that Pearson put in a lot of the groundwork for Canadian bilingualism? Absolutely. Uh, we tend to give Pierre Trudeau credit for things that Pearson did, and bilingualism is one of them. Um, he gives a, a key speech when he's still leader of the opposition about the importance of bilingualism uh, to save the country. Uh, he brings in the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism, which recommends bilingualism, and he begins, even though the legislation isn't passed, he begins the process of making a bilingual Ottawa which Pierre Trudeau follows up on by bringing in the formal legislation. But all the first steps are taken by Pearson. Um, and he does things like um, he brings in more Francophones to his cabinet than any other cabinet before. Um, I think it's something like 40% of the members of his cabinet were Francophones, which is a phenomenal number. Um, and he encourages them to speak French in the cabinet meetings, speak French. Um, up until that point, cabinet meetings have been conducted in English only because the Anglophones tended not to understand French. But Pearson very much wanted to change that. Uh, the clerk of the Privy Council in that period, a man named Gordon Robertson, who would have been the senior public servant in Canada, is sent off to Quebec to learn French. Uh, he spends a year in Quebec City learning French as an example to the other people in the public service that public servants should be able to work in English and in French. And so how pressing was the Francophone situation to Pearson's government and Canada as a whole at that point? It was absolutely pressing. Uh, when the, the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism issues its first report in 1965, it says that Canada is passing through the greatest crisis in its history. Um, the reality is that separatism is growing rapidly, um, that Diefenbaker had badly mishandled the Quebec file, uh, and that a few more years of drift could have resulted in the end of the country. And Pearson acts, and he acts quickly. Um, he brings prominent Francophones into his cabinet. He creates the Royal Commission on Bilingualism. He starts turning Ottawa into a bilingual city. Uh, and without that, I don't think Canada would have survived. And so did the French President Charles de Gaulle's Vive le Québec libre speech have any impact on this at all? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it was a fascinating moment. Um, so de Gaulle comes in 1967. This is after the Royal Commission is already established and the first steps towards creating bilingualism 
uh, are already underway. Um, in a speech in Montreal, he says, vive le Québec libre, long live free Quebec, uh, to a roaring response from the audience. Uh, and Pearson, I think, was always at his best in times of crisis. Um, Pearson rebuked him on national TV. I think it was the right thing to do. You don't meddle in the, the internal affairs of another country. And Pearson had the, the good sense to point out to de Gaulle that Canadians were free. No part of Canada needed to be freed. Uh, and in fact, many thousands of Canadians had died on the battlefields of France to make that country free. And so you mentioned that similarly to Mackenzie King, Pearson was a really good recruiter. Is there any specific individuals that he recruited that really helped his government? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, the most important, of course, would be Pierre Trudeau. And it is telling that only twice in Canadian history has a prime minister retired, turned over the reins to somebody in the same party, and that person has gone on to win an election. And that is the transition from Mackenzie King to Louis Saint Laurent and the transition from Lester Pearson to Pierre Trudeau. And both of those cases have the same thing in common. Uh, the prime minister, the, the original prime minister was an excellent recruiter uh, and was able to bring not just one, but many potential successors into the cabinet. So when the time came, there, were, there was somebody who, with the training and the knowledge who could take over the role. So in addition to Pierre Trudeau, we had um, uh, Jean Marchand from Quebec, a union leader, we had Walter Gordon, who was uh, a financial wizard um, from Toronto. We had Mitchell Sharp, who was a former senior public servant, uh, who also ran in Toronto. We had Bud Drury, who was a former public servant, a former deputy minister of national defense. Uh, Robert Winters, um, Paul Hellyer, I could go on and on. Um, of course, Judy LaMarche, who was the first woman to be in a liberal cabinet, all of them brought into politics by, by Lester Pearson. How effective was Pearson's leadership of the Liberal Party? I think his leadership has been underestimated because he, he wasn't a good campaigner. Uh, and so he's been criticized for that. And, and the assumption is that because he didn't campaign well, he wasn't a very good leader. But if you look at leadership as bringing people together, getting them to rally around a common vision and then getting them to implement that vision, uh, it's hard to find anybody who was much better than Lester Pearson. How was Pearson's personal life impacted by his success? Uh, Pearson was a, a workaholic, uh, so he wasn't home very often. Um, during the Second World War, when he was a diplomat, he was away in London and his wife was in Ottawa raising the kids. Uh, and I think it was difficult. I don't think he got to spend as much time with his wife and family as he would have wanted or they would have wanted. How much did Pearson's background in foreign affairs influence his time as prime minister? I, I think his foreign affairs background um, was helpful because he had the tools of a diplomat that he could bring to managing caucus and to managing cabinet. Uh, but his period as prime minister was largely about domestic affairs, not international affairs. So I don't think that might have been, a, I actually should say that was probably a disappointment to him. Certainly it was a disappointment to Canadians to bring their top diplomat to the job of prime minister. And then he doesn't do anything particularly significant on the international front. But I think, uh, I think those skills of a diplomat are applicable, whether it's in international affairs or domestic affairs. And so what eventually led to Pearson's resignation? Yeah, the best answer I can give to that is that he had accomplished what he had set out to do. He had only been prime minister for five years, but his government had, had passed just a flurry of legislation, created all sorts of new programs, 
And I think he was spent. I don't know that there was much else for him. You have to remember as well that he was he was getting old. He was in his seventies by this point, uh, and I don't think he had he had much fire left in his belly. So, Stephen, where do you rank Pearson among all the prime ministers of Canada? So, my colleague Norman Hilmer and I have done this twice. We've ranked the prime ministers based on feedback from uh, historians and political scientists across the country. Uh, last time we did it for Maclean's and we had about 123 experts provide with provide us with their opinions. And Mackenzie King was at the top of the list and Pearson was, I believe, fourth. But I also filled out the survey that we created. I voted as well, even though I was I was counting the votes and I put Pearson at the top. Um, I, he King may have accomplished more, but King was in office for 21 years. Pearson was in office for five years. Uh, and I think that you have to take that into account. I think it was uh, just a remarkable series of accomplishments. And when you ask Canadians today about their identity, they might mention the flag. They certainly emphasize that we have a national public health care system. They see Canada as a, a generous and, and open place. These are the values of Lester Pearson. Uh, they certainly certainly aren't the values of many of the other prime ministers in our history. So I, I would argue that Pearson created modern Canada. Uh, and for that, we have to put him at the top of the list. And so why does Pearson not get as much credit as some of the other prime ministers? Pearson was terrible in public. Um, he was very good in small groups. He was the most charming man you could meet. But he was terrible on camera. Um, he had a little bit of a lisp that made him look made him sound weak. He was an awkward speaker. He tended to sway back and forth as he spoke, almost like a metronome. Um, he came off as, he, he had the, the bad habit of smiling at, at the wrong moment, which made him look a little bit smug. Uh, he just wasn't effective in the television age. On top of that, as a diplomat, he was, he was used to making compromises, uh, to backpedaling, to going around problems. And people perceive that leadership is about taking a strong stand and battling forward and never backing down. Really, that isn't leadership. Um, I don't know what that is, but it's not leadership. Pearson understood that leadership meant making compromises and bringing people together, but it's not a heroic way of leading. Uh, and I think for that reason, he was perceived as weak. When he left office in 1968, uh, the Gallup organization conducted a poll and they asked people about the accomplishment, the liberal accomplishments that would help them, help them win the next election. And the vast majority of Canadians could not think of a single accomplishment of the Pearson government. <laughs> this is the government that brought us the Canada Pension Plan and Medicare and the flag. The majority of Canadians could not think of one accomplishment. And I think that's because he was not a heroic figure. Uh, and he, people just missed what he was doing while he was doing it. It's only in retrospect that we see how how transformational a figure he was. A hero behind the scenes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs>